1: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm Alejandra Bronfman. My guest today is Joral Melendez-Badillo, who will soon be joining the Department of History at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He's the author of The Lettered Barriada, Workers, Archival Power, and the Politics of Knowledge in Puerto Rico, Duke Press, 2021. This wonderful book does two things. It tells the history of labor in early 20th century Puerto Rico, and it tells the story of the making of the archive that has shaped the way we tell those histories. That archive, like so many, was informed by particular people and events, even as it silenced others. The book is a thoughtful consideration of labor, literary culture, and the politics of mobilization. I hope you enjoy our conversation.
0: Welcome, Jurel. Thanks for joining me today. Gracias, Alejandra. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be in community and in dialogue with you. So let's start with the title. What
1: is the barriada?
0: Yeah, so... Thank you for that question. So the letter Barriada is actually a an homage or a tribute to a key text in Latin America's intellectual tradition, which is Angel Rama's La Ciudad Letrada, The Lettered City. And so in that book, Angel Rama sought to understand the relationship between intellectuals and the state, particularly the centrality of reading and writing in the construction of space. And so those processes that Rama described in La Ciudad Letrada when I was, I was studying the Puerto Rican working classes or the context of Puerto Rico in the early 20th century, just found out that they were very similar to what workers were actually doing and engaging with, right? And so for me, the letter Barriada is not only an homage, but it's also being in dialogue with Rama's work by arguing that working class peoples in Puerto Rico were participating in similar historical processes, but in the margins of the country's cultural and intellectual elites. And a funny short story is that I actually arrived at Rama by mistake. I was actually in the library as an undergrad looking for books from uh, Carlos Rama, his brother actually, who was a sociologist, and so I took all the books I found from Carlos Rama, and among them was La Ciudad Letrada. And the first time I read it, I didn't understand a word of what was happening. And so I went back to Rama uh, as a graduate student, and it really helped me think through some of the things that I wanted to do in my dissertation then and now the book.
1: So I was thinking about that book, actually, uh, as I was reading yours, and I realized that there are now a kind of series of books that have taken him as inspiration. There's books about um, the Andean countryside and one about um, Mexico, letter writing. And so I'm wondering how the Puerto Rican case contributes to those discussions.
0: Absolutely. So I think that scholars have used his book to think about the, the role of reading and writing and the centrality, really, of reading and writing in broader social and cultural context. For me, uh, I think that it's doing another thing. It's looking at the ways that working class intellectual communities also negotiated with the state, with other social actors through the print word. And so I think that it's, for me, it's a way of yielding light to similar processes that had been studied in the Andes and in Mexico, uh, but in the particular context of a Caribbean country that was colonized and occupied by the United States in 1898. So the particularity and the historicity of the moment that I'm studying, I think it's important. And also for me, it allows me, the concept allows me to look at workers' literary production beyond propaganda, because I think that after the 1970s historiographical turn in social history and with history from below, you know, a lot of scholars like Chuco Quintero, Gervasio Garcia... Blanca Silvestrini, were all thinking about workers' cultural production uh, and dealing with some of the sources that I deal in the book. But for them, it was more of uh, how workers use this to advance their class struggle. And so I think that Rama allows me to look at that same sort of archive in another way and, and try to think about the role of reading and writing in the production of identities in the production of social hierarchies within the margins. Um, And so I think that to answer your question, I think it's tied to the historicity of the moment that I'm trying to engage with, which is that post 1898 moment in the Caribbean. And so Puerto Rico offers for me uh, an example of how working class people's negotiated knowledge production, Um, in relation to this new polity that was emerging.
1: Yeah, I feel like um, this book sort of changed the way I think about both literary production in Puerto Rico and also labor in Puerto Rico. Um, And I'm wondering if that was one of your intentions.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So um, I was trying to bridge those two worlds, uh, try to think really intentionally about the ways that these people that were producing all this uh, knowledge and narratives were thinking about themselves. Because oftentimes when we look at it through simply to the lens of labor, we just see them as workers trying to advance you know, their class struggle and whatnot. But if we look at it from the world of literary studies, it's simply looking at the text. So I wanted to merge those two things and be really intentional in taking seriously how they saw themselves. And so a lot of them saw themselves not only as workers, but also as playwrights, as teachers, as journalists. Um, and and they had a myriad of fluid identities. And so I think that by challenging in a way, the foundations of labor studies and looking at it through the lens of literary studies and, and literary production in Puerto Rico allowed me to to look at certain nuances that I think had been overlooked In the past,
1: one of the other things that you do actually, which I which I um, enjoyed as well, is is that you go well. You think about texts um, not just as words on a page, but as sort of functioning within spaces, um, within workshops, within sort of circulating transnationally and globally among different kinds of people. So I'm wondering why why was it important to bring in that kind of I guess materialist perspective in this in a sense of thinking about objects circulating not sort of Marxist materialism, although you might have been thinking about that as well. <laughs> um, but um, but um, but why why the, the the spaces that you kind of inhabit and investigate?
0: Absolutely, thank you for that question. And I think that leads me to to unpack a little bit the, the term the letter barriada in itself because what I think it's doing beyond the tribute and the dialogue with drama, it is also for me, um, an important concept to think about the intellectual community that this workers created. And so there were multiple intellectual communities in Puerto Rico, but the one that I'm particularly interested, which was this working class intellectual community created by a cluster, a small group of members to uh, affiliated to this labor federation, La Federación Libre de Trabajadores. Um, so that's, that's the letter barrial that I'm studying. And so one of the things that I argue in the book is that this, intellectual community came alive through the nexus of, one, political power, uh, number two, literary production, and number three, the creation of space, both social and physical spaces. And so to answer your question, I think that the print word was crucial in the creation of those spaces, not only the physical ones, because they, there is that sort of material dimension to it. And I try to look at social study centers that were created as makeshift pedagogical projects and makeshift libraries uh, that workers were creating as part of their broader uh, this broader educational ethos that they had. But I think that the print word was also crucial in the construction of these protean identities, in the construction of this, what I call in the book, global subjectivities, uh, which is basically, I think that it allowed... Workers, even those workers that had never traveled outside of the Puerto Rican archipelago, to imagine themselves as part of this global labor community. And so there, uh, I think that the print word, the materiality of the print word, and also the, the social dimension of it, allowed me to to think about transnational circulation, not only of individuals, not only of bodies, but how ideas will, were transnationally circulating and we're transforming local subjectivities and so for me it, it was very important to be attentive to that materiality uh, but also looking at the social dimensions of it and the social worlds that it allowed to allow them to craft and create and so i think that you know and it, it could be very abstract at times but it also it's it's very concrete Because one of the arguments that I'm making is that these workers are producing this letter barriada at the moment that the Puerto Rican elite is trying to rethink the nation. And so the reformation of the laboring masses, and this is a conversation that had been happening before 1898, uh, so it began in the late 19th century, the reformation of labor was a crucial component in these elite intellectuals discourse, but workers were not part of the conversation. So what I argue is that the print word allowed them to engage in international dialogue with their peers in different parts of the world. And so for me, the the print word is doing a lot of things at this moment, uh, but in particular, to the letter Barriada, it's allowing these working class intellectuals that call themselves Obreros ilustrados to create social Spaces both lo- both locally and transnationally.
1: The book does more than that too. Um, it does a kind of double thing, right? So you talk about this movement about the obreros ilustrados, but you also um, talk about this archive that they created and implications for later interpretations of that labor movement, right? And here you bring in the silences in that archive that they're creating that you're reading for us, right? The silences about race and gender. So you are also kind of creating a kind of counter archive um, as part of what the book does. So um, can we start with race? How does the silencing work in the particular archive that you're that you're reading and thinking about?
0: Absolutely, thank you. Thank you for that. And, and in part, I also did not want to write uh, hagiography or I did not want to reify certain uh, codes uh, with this book. And so I was very intentional also of being uh, suspicious of the work that they were producing in itself. Uh, and so archives are central to the analysis of the book. And so I, I th- one of the arguments that I'm trying to make is that the archives that these workers created at the turn of the 20th century not only had power in the moment when they were created, but still operate with great transhistorical power in the present day. And so these small groups, so the small group of workers that crafted this intellectual community uh, were mostly urban skilled workers from uh, urban centers like San Juan, Ponce, Mayagüez, Caguas, And so it was a small group uh, at a moment in which 89% uh, of the population, uh, or 69%, sorry, of the population did not know how to read or write according to the 1899 census. And so it is a small group that is seizing the modes of intellectual production. And so one of the arguments that I'm making is that they were conscious of the power that dominating and crafting historical narratives had. And so in the process, they create all uh, all these uh, archives that sought to silence gender and race and non-skilled workers. And so f- to your question of race, I think that the book by Ileana Rodriguez Silva, Silencing Race, was highly influential in my own thinking. So one of the things that's happening is that At the turn of the 20th century, the leading labor federation in Puerto Rico, la Federación Libre de Trabajadores, decides to consciously uh, articulate a classist sort of discourse of we are all workers. There's no differences among us. But doing so, they were consciously and forcefully silencing any discourse around race. And so this is also, I think, and I argue in the book, that is tied to their Eurocentric aspirations, these notions of enlightenment and rationality. And so race in the early 20th century labor movement was not necessarily tied to phenotype. Uh, If you look at the images of the Socialist Party, of the Federación Libre, you will see a lot of Black men that participated in these organizations. However, there's no talk about race. And so part of the the argument that I make in the book is that they allowed uh, Black folks to be part of these organizations if they they practice a de-Africanized form of Blackness, uh, and also if they did not address race in their writings. And now that's one part of it. And then the second part of, 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 of how this was operating has to do with archives. So one of the arguments that I'm trying to make underlining the narrative of the book is that it's not necessarily that they were not talking about race and they were not talking about Blackness or there's not necessarily that they were not engaging with it. It's that we don't know how they were thinking about it because the archive that we have inherited is the archive by the, uh, that a cluster of individuals crafted and created. And so that's the argument I'm trying to make in relation to the power of that archive that they created. And so I don't want to overextend, but one thing I'll mention, and this is also referenced by Eliana Rodriguez Silva, is that there was another labor federation that we no, we do not know much about in that particular period in the first 10 years of the, 19th cent- of the 20th century, which is La Federación Regional, led by a Black worker, and they were explicitly addressing racial conversations in their writings. However, they were erased from the archives that we have inherited. So we don't know much about them. So it's not that race was not part of the conversation, is that we might never be able to know to what degree they were having those conversations and dialogues because of the archives that the workers that inhabited the letter Barriada created.
1: It's really interesting to think about how these issues resonated with Cuba and the way Cubans were talking about race, right at the same time as well. Absolutely, yeah. But,
0: That's not a question.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, and, and I was
0: and I was thinking of the also the the sort of exchange that these workers were engaging with, because one of the things that happens is that they were part of this global sort of network. But Cuba and particularly Havana, and particularly the newspaper Tierra uh, was crucial in how workers imagined their global subjectivities uh, and in part, I'm thinking here uh, also with Kurt work on this anarchist network of the Caribbean and so I'm just I'm just echoing what you were mentioning about how it resembled Cuba, and I think in part. There were also working class intellectuals in Cuba that were in dialogue with working class intellectuals in Puerto Rico. So there was this sort of cross pollination uh, between these two yeah. Caribbean countries. Yeah.
1: Yeah. We forget how how much things and people and ideas circulated among those among those places.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely.
1: Um, okay. So let's talk about gender. I want to thank you for talking about Luisa Capetillo. Um, I love introducing her to my students. They hardly ever know about her, but they do after I'm done with them. Um, but you, you also <laughs> talk about Juana Colón and Paca Escavi. So who were they and why do we need them in the counter archive that you're creating?
0: Absolutely. So one of the things that I, I argue in the book is that when we think of the term obrero in Puerto Rico, and particularly I I say this because I'm using the concept of obreros ilustrados, enlightened working men. I consciously made the decision to translate it as working men instead of workers, because although it is oftentimes used as a genderless sort of uh, noun, in reality, we are talking about men when we think about these working class intellectuals. And so I have a chapter, chapter three in the book, which is in the margins of the margins. It's trying to think about anonymous ilustradas, anonymous enlightened working women. And so for me, gender is important because this is, a, and also race, because this is a moment in early 20th century Puerto Rico when the majority of the working classes were non-white. And were. it's also a moment when women were entering the labor market. Uh, and so at that particular moment, these obreros ilustrados are really invested in silencing and erasing them from the narrative. And so in 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 the book, what I try to do with Luisa, Juana, and Paca is basically to challenge the archive that these obreros ilustrados created. And I argue that these women created a counter archive, and it's a counter archive because it was it was it went against the logics of the archive that Obreros Ilustrados were creating. And so Luisa Gabetillo is uh, it's not, she's not well known beyond academic circles, but she has been studied by a a large number of scholars. And I actually, when you mentioned her, I was looking here in my office, I have a plushie of Luisa Gabetillo that I love to bring to classes every time I talk (laughs) about her. Uh, And so for me, they provide an example of how working women had to not only go against the logic of the era's heteropatriarchal discourses, but they also had to challenge the labor movement's heteropatriarchal structures. And so Luisa Capetillo is a fascinating individual that wrote multiple books. She published a newspaper, La Mujer, that circulated around the world she had a hostel in New York. She traveled to the Dominican Republic, through Cuba. Uh, there's some, some people argue that she spent some time in Mexico, in Florida, in New York. So she's this fascinating individual. And so in the book, there's a, I found in a newspaper uh, this sort of short article in which they are basically, so one of the things that she's famous for is that she was arrested both in Cuba and in Puerto Rico for using uh, men's clothing, a pantsuit. And so there's, I, I found this fascinating quote in a newspaper in which they say uh, to Luis Agapetillo, apparently she was being bullied by children in San Juan. And so they were like, do not pay attention to these children or to anyone that's trying to, to mess with you. Uh, and so we support you uh, to the degree that do, you do not interfere in men's affairs. Right. And so there's this caveat. So there's this support and solidarity by the labor movement that's dependent on her maintaining certain gender roles. And so after I finished the book, I also found her obituary published in 1922 in this newspaper called Justicia, in which they were talking about how great of a loss it was to, for Capetilla to have died. But then they go and say that she never really understood the ideas that she was professing because uh, mm-hmm. her mind was like that of a child. And so you see how even after death, she was still being challenged. And so in the letter Barriada, Luisa is that sort of the quintessential Obrera Ilustrada, but I bring also Paques Cabí and Juana Colón because they don't fit that sort of Obrera Ilustrada eh, narrative. Paques Cabí was a laundress from Maya West. We don't know much about her. Uh, What I found is basically some mentions of her in the archive when she participated in labor congresses. uh, And she also challenged the Labor Federation in other ways. So at a moment when the Labor Federation was tied to the American Federation of Labor, Pagas Cavi was advocating independence and calling the U.S. the blonde invaders. And so that went against the logics of La Federación Libre. And then Juana Colón, for me, is the most fascinating case, which was this uh, illiterate Black working woman from the town of Comerillo that helped build the Socialist Party, yet she was erased from the narratives that Orelos Ilustrados created. And so she is fascinating not only because of what she did, but also the ways that she was remembered Actually, we know about Juana Colón because her community never forgot her. And there's a pamphlet that was actually published in 1972 by members of the Socialist Party that rescued uh, the 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 myth of Juana Colón. And so she's actually the person that's uh, in the cover of the letter Barriada. And so she's a fascinated individual. And I think these three women challenge the heteropatriarchal logic of the archive that obreros ilustrados created at the turn of the 20th century. You mentioned the
1: creation of the Socialist Party, and um, I want to just talk about that for a minute because it seems like it was an important but really double-edged phenomenon. So it seems that the ilustrados were navigating, on the one hand, the U.S., on the other hand, the Puerto Rican elite and the gatekeeping that they were doing, on the other hand, their own positionality with what they called the working masses, right so was there anything else that they were navigating, and what was the sort of the legacy for working people of all of that navigating that they were doing to to create the socialist party
0: absolutely absolutely so so it's a it's a moment of great tensions and contradictions, contradictions, particularly because of that post-1898 moment. I think it's a moment in which the Puerto Rican polity is reshaped and redefined. And so as all of these things were happening in the realm of, of traditional politics in Puerto Rico, I think that the people that I studied really wanted to be participants in, the, in those broader processes. And as you mentioned, uh, and rightly so, they were you know, navigating US colonialism, uh, not only through US empire, but also because of their relationship to the American Federation of Labor. Uh, And so they were negotiating that they were negotiating the Puerto Rican elites. Uh, And then I I think that 1915 is a watershed moment, uh, because one of the arguments that I'm making in the book is that as they're navigating all of these things, they are invested in becoming political subjects. And so in 1915, they create the Socialist Party, uh, which is not particularly important in the realms of electoral politics until the 1920s, when it becomes a political force. And so I think that the Socialist Party legitimized these obreros ilustrados as politicians. And so one of the arguments that I also make in the book is that while there were legitimized as politicians, and it bears to mention that they won the 1932 and 1936 elections through uh, alliances with the Republican Party of Puerto Rico, which some historians call their class enemies. And so while they won uh, the ballot box, it basically ripped the party apart, the Socialist Party. And so it, it turned out to be weakened. But uh, what I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get at is that they became legitimate political subjects that were now in the Insular the Senate. They were now, you know, in the United States in spheres of, of power and politics. However, they were never legitimized as intellectuals. Uh, and so I look at that in the book, in in the chapter on the strike at the University of Puerto Rico, in which uh, Rafael Alonso Torres, one of the... Labor federation's members gets appointed to the board of trustees at the University of Puerto Rico and students go on strike immediately saying that they don't want an ox uh, as part of the board of trustees. And so there you see how they're not only negotiating U.S. colonialism, uh, they're not only negotiating uh, how they interact with the Puerto Rican elites, but also they are also negotiating popular perceptions of working class peoples even if they were intellectuals even if they had published books and so for me it's a very interesting moment when the university of puerto rico is also becoming this space of higher learning of the 1930s and that nation building process that had happened in the late 19th century is now taking place within the university yet workers are not allowed to participate as intellectuals, and so the Socialist Party, I think it was it was important in legitimizing them politically, and it allowed them to acquire class mobility. And again, this I, I always like to highlight that it's it's a very small group of people, and so in relation to the working masses, one of the arguments that I make is that they became the self assigned interlocutors of the working masses. Um, or at least that's how they saw themselves. And so yeah, so I think that the Socialist Party was crucial in in that historical moment.
1: Yeah, and sort of that that sort of self assignment comes with its own problematic, doesn't yeah. it?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and so they I think that's that's part of the argument that cuts across the book is that by self assigning themselves as the interlocutors of the working classes, they got to dictate how we think of labor history. And so I think that's the, the other part of the argument that I'm trying to make. It's that it's not only a book about the history. So it's not a working class history book. in in the traditional sense, I'm looking at this small group of working class intellectuals that crafted this archive, sought to speak on behalf of the others. And now what we have in Puerto Rico or what we call labor historiography, it's basically the history of the small group of people that we have equated with the history of the working classes. So I think that we urgently need to rethink how we look at that particular historical moment because we don't know much about what was happening with the majority of the laboring masses in Puerto Rico, because we have only depended on this particular archive.
1: Yeah. It's really fascinating how you sort of toggle back and forth between those two. And I think that that's, that's really one of the strengths of the book, but I, I just want to go back to the strike for just a minute, because that really surprised me. And I guess that comes from my own, um, Ignorance and maybe sense of kind of stereotypical sense of students as always kind of radical and always protesting, you know, for <laughs> for the rights of uh, you know underrepresented people or something. And so I, I was I was quite surprised that the students were sort of protesting against this this uh, this guy Alonso Torres. Was that surprising
0: to you? Absolutely. And so it's a strike that we don't know much about. And as you know, the University of Puerto Rico has this huge tradition of of militancy in the labor uh, and and with a militancy from the student body that has always had good relationships at least in our imaginaries with the labor movement. Uh, and I think that this strike problematized that narrative. And so one of the things that I wanted to do with that 1933 strike at the University of Puerto Rico was also to look at these processes beyond the binary of good and evil And so, you know, Rafael Alonso Torres was a highly problematic individual. Uh, The Socialist Party at that historical moment was a highly problematic institution because, uh, and it goes back to this notion of being the self assigned interlocutors of the masses because while they saw themselves as the leaders of labor in general or the working classes, it's also a moment when they were being challenged by their own unions because of their bureaucratic practices. Uh, it's a moment in which there's a lot of wildcat strikes against the union, and so, in a sense, you know, we it, it allowed me to problematize the socialist party in itself, and also to problematize the image of the students always on the side of the oppressed, and so, so it became this this small cosmos of 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 Different sort of political ideologies that were being negotiated by students, by the faculty, by the labor movement, by the public that had an active participation. And one of the things that really surprised me was not only the student movement, but also how this spread to high schools. And so there's a moment in the strike in which Governor Gore feared that this was going to trickle down to elementary schools that elementary school children were going to start striking against Rafael Alonso Torres (laughs) at the University of Puerto Rico. And so that fear was real. And so it tells me a lot about that political moment. And one thing that I have not mentioned, and I think it's also important to contextualize, you know, this sort of porosity in terms of of the labor movement is that the majority of the individuals that I studied favored the annexation of Puerto Rico to the United States. And so including Rafael Alonso Torres. And so traditionally in Puerto Rican history, that has been tied to the right or more conservative sort of approaches. And so I also wanted to challenge that and challenge nationalist historiography. Beyond my politics, and I'm super honest and open about it, I I do believe in the national liberation of Puerto Rico, and I believe in the independence of Puerto Rico, contrary to Rafael Alonso Torres. But I think that what Rafael Alonso Torres and the Socialist Party were doing was also quite radical in itself. Because by trying to forcefully present themselves as intellectuals, as politicians, when they were being actively pushed out, I find that quite radical. And I do have a shorter piece that I published in the Hispanic American Historical Review about the Socialist Party, arguing that, yes, they were pro-annexation. However, this is the same party that was talking about the abolition of the police. They were talking about the abolition of abolition of prisons. They were, it was a party formed by ex convicts And so I think that, I was also trying to challenge nationalist historiography, and the strike allowed me to to highlight those th- those tensions beyond, you know, who was right or who was wrong. Because ultimately, I finished a chapter, and I don't know who I side with. Uh, I, <laughs> I I still don't know if, if the students were right or, or Rafael Alonso Torres or Luis Muñoz Marín in the back end, you know, scheming. Uh, to dominate the narrative that was going to be published. Uh, and so so it, it, for me, it's a really interesting case study of the complexities of historicizing a, a particular historical moment.
1: Yeah, I mean, it really gets into like even more complexity than we usually encounter with all of these kinds of issues. And also, just for me, it drove home the, the point that you made, which is that statehood, you know, association with the United States as a state, um, Means so many different things at different times, right? And we can't assume exactly. that what we think about it today is what is what people thought about it, um, you know, in 1933.
0: Uh, absolutely, absolutely. That's why you would find anarchist texts that had that that cited George Washington uh, at the beginning of the 20th century, and now it seems like an oxymoron. But back then, you know, the United States was the land of liberty of. Freedoms of labor rights. so it, it was doing something to them that it's that it's very different to how we conceptualize it right now. yeah
1: so so you finish up the book with um, a kind of survey of the histories that were written, right? and with the kind of you 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 put this archive in place, but then you really question it and you and you read it with a great deal of nuance. So I, I wonder if, You can just talk about that a little bit in that process and and thinking, help us think about how do we read these things that are, you know, they're canonical and they're going to be maybe for a long time um, alongside the, the other things that you're starting to uncover.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. So by the end of the book, one of the things that I wanted to do was to actually think very intentionally about how this archive that I call ideational archive in in the book came to be. And so it goes back to this question that we were talking about earlier about the materiality of these archives. And so I I think that there's three particular books that set the foundations of labor historiography in Puerto Rico and that were actually written by workers themselves. And so it's Luchas Emancipadoras by uh, Emancipatory Struggles by Santiago Iglesias Los Ideales del Siglo XX, The Ideals of the 20th Century by José Ferrer y Ferrer, and 40 Años de Lucha Proletaria, 40 Years of Proletarian Struggle by Rafael Alonso Torre, the same individual that was called an ox at uh, the University of Puerto Rico. And so I, I argue that they set the foundations of the labor movement because this is also, if we historicize it, it's a moment of great change for the Federación Libre the Socialist Party, they had already acquired positions in government, they were uh, retiring, there's a, a generational relay that's happening within the labor movement. And so now they're really interested in shaping the historical narrative of what they lived. And so I think that those books are doing different things, but they're tied by the same ethos of trying to dominate how we think in the future about them right? And so it could be seen as their uh, apologia. And so I I try to, in in that particular chapter, what I'm trying to do is to look at the ways that they crafted their archive and how they created what we could call some master codes that went unchallenged or that are still unchallenged to this day, right? And so that's what I was trying to to get at there. And so we see how they erase women, they er silence any conversation, about race, uh, but also created some really interesting myths. Uh, for example, it, it perpetrated the myth that had already started early, in early 20th century of this individual, Santiago Iglesias Pantin, as the creator of the labor movement, as a book was later titled. Uh, and I always laugh and joke that it seems like if Santiago Iglesias Pantin just flipped his fingers and then all the workers were organized. And so those. Those myths were actually articulated through those books, and so they became sort of the primary sources that historians use, both traditional historians and then historians after the 1970s. And so that's what I'm, I'm I'm trying to get at, and I'm trying to 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 do this sort of nuanced reading by paying by paying attention to what each book was doing. But ultimately, what I wanted to argue is that we have uncritically reproduced some of the silences and some of the master codes that they articulated in that archive in the 1930s. So,
1: yeah. And that, you know, that comes through, that comes through really, really clearly. Um, And like I said, it's one of the, it's really one of the sort of powerful points that you make is sort of toggling back and forth between those two. So I have just a couple more questions. Um, One is that, um, i noticed that and um, i noticed that you write a lot of this book kind of deliberately putting aside the questions of status right um statehood versus independence and i think at one point you say okay i you know i'm not going to talk about this uh, as much as you know as much as people might want me to or something um but that but the question um you know it comes up in little ways right? And so I'm wondering if you have thoughts about how do we read the book in light of those discussions, in light of the discussions about status, and maybe in light of the the more recent discussions, which seem to have turned to the notion of decolonization.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for that question, because I think that, you know, it's something that I often get asked. Um, And so, in fact, uh, (laughs) in full honesty and transparency, one of the readers, uh, anonymous readers asked me, why i didn't make colonialism the central colonialism and empire the central analytical axis of the book and i think that there are many many fantastic works by historians that have done that well and 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 great and have written beautiful and important texts but that was not what i was trying to do in this book and i was not interested in doing because i i was particularly interested in going beyond that sort of framework of resistance or integration to empire, because then if we do that, we lose the multiplicity of political experiments and radical experiments that these workers were doing. Also, I think that there's a danger oftentimes in using that sort of, when thinking about Puerto Rico, of using that Sort of binary of resistance or integration to empire because it tends to erase the agency of people like the ones that I'm studying, right? People that were actively thinking about what it meant to be a citizen, people that were actively thinking about the island's quote unquote, el problema social, the social problem, uh, and that were actively, you know, trying to reshape local politics. And so, in a way, by not Focusing on empire and colonialism, I am trying to highlight the ways that people navigated the complex colonial polity that was happening in Puerto Rico. And so I guess to, to your question, I think that, you know, it is an important lens to read the book, uh, you know, to understand the historical reality of uh, imperialism, colonialism, and coloniality in Puerto Rico at the turn of the 20th century because it, it was central the u.s state s- implemented new forms after 1898 of understanding its populations by regulating hygiene, sexuality um, moral conduct etc cetera, etc cetera. and so the people that I study were navigating all those things and one of the things that One of the things I say in the book is that, you know, the material conditions that these workers talked about, the mystery that they talked about in their writings was very much real. I don't want to downplay the reality of the world that they were living in, and colonialism was there. But I consciously not make it my central analytical axis precisely because they were doing so many things that went beyond that. And and in a way, I think that, you know, oftentimes nationalist historiography has overlooked the radical potential of the project that these people were articulating precisely because of their political ideology that they favored annexation. But I think that they were doing other radical political things in challenging coloniality, in challenging those hierarchical structures that operated in Puerto Rico around gender, around race. So people like Juana Colón, Pagascabi, and Luisa Capetillo, I don't know if they actually favored the annexation. I know that Pagascabi was an independentista, but I don't know about Juana. And Luisa is, is big. She was an internationalist. But that was, for me, it was not the point. It was to see the ways that they challenged those heteropatriarchal logics, the same way that Juan Vilar challenged those racial logics or Mateo Sanjurjo. And so that's why for me, it was important not to make it the center of my analysis, because I wanted to highlight these folks' agency and not simply bound them to this sort of existence that was simply tied to the status of Puerto Rico. And that's not to say that I I don't think the status is important. Again, I believe that colonialism has everything to do with how Puerto Rico is collapsing and has collapsed and continues to collapse nowadays. But in in the book, I think that these workers were challenging coloniality, even when they were not challenging traditional understandings of colonialism.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it, it comes through... Um, where you demonstrate the kind of multiplicity of these lives that were in kind of very local spaces, but also transnational spaces and not just to the U.S., but to Cuba and Argentina and all of these other places. It really kind of opens up a whole panorama of things that that otherwise might not get talked about. So I, I appreciated that. Um, Okay, one last question. <laughs> you, open, you open with uh, a lovely story about your uncles, talking to your uncles on the balcony. Um, and I'm wondering, uh, have they read the book and what do they think about it?
0: You know, uh, they haven't. I've talked to them about it, but unfortunately I still have a lot of unlearning to do in terms of my writing. And so I don't know, first, it's in English. And so hopefully there's a translation in in process. Uh, but at the same time, I think that I I wish I had made the book more accessible in terms of its narrative. Uh, I, they're super proud every time I, I give a talk or every time I, I do something in Puerto Rico, they're all over my Facebook saying, Dios te bendiga, we're so proud. Yes. Uh, and, and my mom, I remember when I was defending my dissertation, Uh, She took a turn, she was in the room, uh, and my mom said, you are the uh, descendant of those people that you're studying. And so they're they're definitely proud. But one thing that I I mentioned in the book is that I think I failed ultimately in finding people like my family in the narrative. And so while originally the book began as an attempt to find those People like my family, those that were non-unionized, those that did not have a scholarly that did not, had not attended school, that were rural work, rural workers, I failed to find them. So I think the book changed from its original intention. So it became a book about why were they absent? And so instead of trying to write a narrative about them, it's a narrative about the power struggles and the relations of power within historical knowledge production that silenced folks like my my great aunts and uncles and and my grandmother and my grandfather so so that that to say that they haven't read it yet hopefully they'll read a, a Spanish version and hopefully I've done a good enough job in, in translating what I wrote
1: um, well that just sort of suggests that there's a lot more work to be done
0: right absolutely absolutely there's always a lot work to be done.
1: Um, Thank you so much for talking to me today.
0: No, thank you. Thank you uh, for the conversation. and, And yeah, it was great talking to you.